Welcome to Graphic Policy Radio. This is your host, Ilana Levin, and this is a comics podcast. This is a comics podcast for people who know that Marvel and DC don't own the concept of the superhero, and that comics criticism can't just be conversations about the plots of superhero stories. It needs to be about visual storytelling. You know, art, artists, what they draw. Joining me today is uh, Michelle Fife. He's the creator, writer, artist of the action series Copra. He's worked with Marvel and DC on top of fully producing Panorama for Dark Horse, Blood Strike, colon, Brutalist for Image Comics, and Zegas for Fantagraphics. Welcome back. Hey, thanks for having me. Yeah, it's been like thousands of years. I know, um, that's what it feels like for sure. <laughs> I should have looked to see how many, but... uh I definitely enjoyed our conversation last time, but I, I, I'm going to go into this with the assumption that people haven't listened to like every episode of my podcast and, and might be <laughs> right. looking for a new introduction to your work, which just has continued to get more awesome over time. So, oh, Thank you. Well, sure. Yeah. Absolutely. I'd love to talk about Copra, which is, it's, it's my main kind of superhero book, uh, but drawn in my own, you know, specific style written by me, published by me. And uh, I've been doing that for close to, I don't know, nine, 10 years almost. Not quite 10. I haven't hit the decade mark yet. But yeah, that's my main book. Um, for that's people an amazing time for an independent artist to just maintain working on a particular project and like keep publishing. Yeah, I guess I guess I'm just in, in inspired by, you know, people like um, the Hernandez brothers, um, Eric Larson over at Image doing Savage Dragon. Um just uh, these creators who who have a body of work with a specific set of characters that they just do it for year after year for decade after decade and uh that wasn't my goal at first my goal at first was just to produce something at a, at a rapid clip um you know the 24 page full color uh serialized comic book um and then it just kind of built out of that you know, I, I got like the first 12 issues under my belt and then I just decided to keep going with it. And I'm close to 40 issues now. And uh, mm. I don't know when I'm going to stop, to be honest. Uh, part of me wants to stop because I like closure. I like ending stories. Uh, but I'm also I'm, I'm also kind of going with it. You know, it's a, it's been an organic process from the beginning. So I'm just kind of honoring that and we'll see where it takes me. But but I am glad that readers are still around and they're you know, going on this journey with me, that, that, that's incredible to me. That still blows my mind. It's something I do not take for granted. That's wonderful. You know, I, I, um, I don't, I don't, I don't read any of the other sort of ongoing superhero indie series that people have been doing. Um, so this has sort of been that, that one for me. And it's a really great thing to be able to have, to feel like you can be a part of a superhero comic where it's an ongoing saga and I know that editorial isn't going to come in and be like, you can't do that. It's too gay. Or mm-hmm. not that that's like a particular thing with this one, but it's sure. just like sure. such a common thing. And the others are like, this is too violent. This is too weird. Certainly nobody's there looking at your work saying this is too weird because you just get to be as weird as you fucking want. Right. Right. And or or as straight as I as I can be, you know, if I want to tell just a, a straight ahead action comic, that's cool, too. But if I want to be weird for for a couple of issues, I have the freedom to express that. And I don't have mm-hmm. a tutorial. I don't have a company. I don't have a corporation looking over that. 
um, again, it's just a different animal. It's a different item. You know, I've worked for huge companies as well. And uh, that's fun. You know, it's just a different kind of job. I always have this to come back to where I could just do whatever I want. Within reason, also, I don't want it to be like a totally self-indulgent exercise and just doing whatever. I don't think that would hold my interest. I don't think that'll hold uh, the audience's interest. So I pretty much edit myself and I just want to put the book out that I want to see in the world, basically. I mean, it's a, it's a simple, basic concept that it didn't occur to me until years after trying to break in and doing random jobs. I just kind of wanted to create a superhero-ish comic where it's not just superhero, but it's also like a layered um, multi-narrative thing that just could kind of grow in any and every direction I could possibly uh, think of. And for anybody who isn't already reading the series, the big the big uh, story inspiration for a lot of this is the OG Suicide Squad comics, mm-hmm. which is one of my favorite series that I've actually only gotten more into since we last spoke. Um, so uh, if you could imagine like a Suicide Squad story, but especially when it gets to go into the crazier, more multidimensional stuff. And with art that is just completely unique, completely unmistakable, has just stunning and interesting character design and paneling and layouts. And, um, you know, like, I, I definitely, like, there's the Jack Kirby in there, even though you have a very different drawing style from him. I, I don't know. There's a, a look that is very unique that you won't find in any other book. I can oh. always tell exactly from like just a couple, like a corner of a picture even that it's yours. Um, thank I mean, thank you for noticing all that. But I, just to bring bring it back to the uh, European influence. I mean, you know, Matadi is Lorenzo Matadi is never far from my mind. I always I, if I could. I mean, I'm always trying to channel that sort of energy and point of view and apply it to an action comic. I think that's one of the things that might set Cooper apart from from the other superhero team books. Um, but yeah, I don't. I just wanted to do something that was uh, fun and engaging for myself, but also, I don't know, just to prove that I could do it. You know, before the concept of uh, taking like a Suicide Squad riff or a Dirty Dozen riff was kind of not the cool thing to do. You don't do that. You want to be, you know, a hundred percent original all the time and reinvent the wheel every time you make a drawing. And I sort of had to get rid of those pretensions because it was blocking uh, my impulse to do something fun and a little bit more visceral, right? Which is just kind of channeling those old genre comics. And in certain parts of the, the comic industry, genre is a bad word. And it's not that I drank that Kool-Aid, but that was sort of in my system. Even though I grew up with these superhero comics, it's like, well, you don't want, why would you want to do another book about a team that does stuff violently? You know what I mean? Like on paper, <laughs> on paper, yeah. that sounds dull as shit, right? And um, I just had to do it. I just had to kind of go for it and see what I could bring to the table. And part of that is just in the way I approach storytelling, whether it be through layouts or, or, or dialogue and interaction, or just in the, the sheer style in which I draw. Um, which, again, I'm not trying to be like super artsy or anything. That's just the way I draw. And I just didn't mm-hmm. see that reflected in comics at the time. You know, you might, you might see some sort of differences in the independent market, 
never in the mainstream. Never. Yeah. I mean, I think in the past 10 years, it's actually gotten better. Mm -hmm. To be honest, there's a lot of variety, but it's still, there's, there's still something that kind of unifies all that work and that world. And I don't think Copra is of that world still. Um, and that's just the way it has to live, you know, and I'm perfectly happy with that. That's, that's how it came to be. Yeah. I, I, I actually would love to think about like, I'm not a fan of what is considered contemporary quote unquote house style. Although I think house style today is way better than house style was in like the late nineties or early two thousands. Um, and, and but admittedly, I'm a sucker for house style from the 60s and 70s and, and earlier parts of the 80s. Like, I, I don't know if it's just a product of certain aesthetics resonating with me because I'm plagued with the curse of just being perpetually retro mm -hmm. or if there's something about the way people handle stylization from those time periods that speaks to me. But um, I feel like it's a problem that if, if you want to read a superhero comic, you're mostly going to either be stuck with stuff that's house style for the big two, um, or sometimes attempting to be house style for the big two and failing and like, it's not even good enough to do that, or is maybe really cartoonish that might not always feel right to me for this. I don't know. Mm. I'm not asking you to slag anybody else, but I think there's something <laughs> to be talked about. Like, like that's my job. But like, um, but I think there's something to be talked about about the homogeneity. Like, what do you think the role is of house style when it comes to to doing superhero books? And like, as an artist who obviously doesn't want to go in that direction, like, what is the significance of you know not following that? Well, I think the superhero genre specifically lends itself to outrageous styles. That's just the way it is. So the fact that the dominant style in mainstream comic books today leans toward quote unquote realistic is uh, a little unfortunate, I find. Uh, there's room for that. It could accommodate a lot of styles, but the fact that it's only, it's mostly realistic, uh, I, I just, I find it not as exciting as it could be. Now, the house styles, they need to exist and they're always going to exist. That's just the company model. Um, whether it be the 60s, which you and I prefer, or 70s or 80s or 90s, there's always going to be kind of a consistent style uh, feel throughout a line. And you could always find some weirder stuff within that. You have to fight for it mm -hmm. a little harder in certain eras, you know, like some, you know, but I think, you know, the 90s being a good example of something where there were a lot of styles on display. And yet it's always kind of, thrown into this sort of oh 90s kind of Jim Lee image style which did dominate don't get me wrong and it mm -hmm. did shift a lot of people's tastes editorially and the readership but there was a lot of cool shit going on in those years and it just got shuffled underneath because the the prevailing style was so dominant it almost erased people's memory of of cool stuff you know so I'm always unearthing that stuff Partly because, yeah, we're looking back and we're, we're kind of excavating the past and it's nostalgic, but it's also like, well, I missed a lot of stuff. I didn't buy every book back in the 80s or, the, or 90s yeah. or ever, you know, yeah. I'm still discovering stuff from the 80s, mm -hmm. you know, so, so there's just, there's always been a lot. There's a lot, there's always been a lot of options and there's certainly a lot of options now more than ever. But if you're going to just focus on a line of comics from one or two major companies, yeah, you're, you're going to run into some sameness. You know, that's just the way it is. That's just the way uh, these lines operate. 
you know, and that's just something we have to live with as an industry. But me as an artist, I, I would just prefer to see a little bit more variety. And again, I, I mean, I could name names, but they're, you know, for example, like DC has tons of variety, I think. Maybe it's because of the lettering or the coloring where you don't see the styles as clearly. Yeah. It, it, it just, it kind of, it kind of, um, it layers the thing into one of a piece, you know what I mean? So, so all the lines of a certain book or title or a company, they just share this, this value. Uh, and that's maybe what we're seeing, but underneath if you scrape off everything else and you just get the raw art. Yeah. There's going to be some variety. So I don't know. Listen for Copra. I just had to do my own thing. I mean, I, yeah. I still work yeah. in analog and some digital, but mostly mm-hmm. analog because the less time I, I spend staring at a screen, the better, you know, like I, I just can't go digital. It's actually faster for me to go analog. So it's not a, a better or worse scenario. It's just, I could only do what I do, you know, but I, I, I also notice all these things too. I'm not like blind to this, to the industry and, and the, 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 the tastes of the times, you know? So, so, I've noticed this. That's the one thing that has changed since I first started Copra is there is a little bit more variety that skews toward the weirder and the more off kilter, which, you know, mm-hmm. I appreciate. Mm-hmm. Do you have particular artists who come to mind in the positive light when you're, when you're saying this? Well, sure. Uh, just recently I got a comic by uh, Riley Rosmo. I think that's how you mm. say his name. Yeah. Uh, he uh, he yeah. worked with uh, Steve Orlando on Martian Manhunter mm-hmm. and he did a Legion story. He did a little a bit of a uh, little bit of Constantine too, I think. Yeah, he had a Batman story in I think Detective 1027. But anyway, his style is super fluid, super cartoony. When in certain corners of the industry cartoony is not a great thing. You know, here's this guy who's like super cartoony and alive. It's super kinetic. I think it might be digital, but I've you know I follow him on social media, so I think I've seen some process shots of analog. But it doesn't matter because the results are great. You know they speak mm-hmm. for themselves, um, and it's such a weird style to me. I mean, I, I don't I don't use the word weird as, as, in a negative sense at all. Oh, of course I just, not. That's just what I like. I like some mm-hmm. stuff like that. It's not to to make it lesser than you know, even though. You know, some artists are fucking snobs and they will use weird as like an off-putting thing. And, you know, those guys are employed too. So, you know, they're around. That opinion is around. And uh, so, yeah, Riley's cool. Um, Trying to think of others. Um, uh, Giannis Melonianis. What did he draw? Oh, he, he drew all new ultimates for me. He drew a few oh. issues when I was writing all the ultimates for Marvel. Um, but he's great. He's got such an awesome style. Um, I'm, I'm blanking on names, of course. That's just what happens. I know. Here. It's just, but, it's um, okay. Sorry. No, but those are the freshest examples that I could think of. I mean, I could run down the list once I, once we end this conversation. And it, and it's <laughs> no awesome. problem. I am. Um, I had totally forgotten about all new ultimates. That is such an interesting, I like, I mean, that was I a would blip. never. That was a blip. Yeah, in my exactly. That I, came I was, and went. Yeah, but it's what a what an interesting. Uh, I would have liked to have to have realized that was going on because I would have one hundred percent been interested in checking that out. Um, 
but I do, yeah. But I like I love that you've focused on your own world, your own cast of characters, and um, developing their story over time. And um, you know, I think like this one of the things that really does stand out about your work is that you have such textural art that it's like it's interesting to me to see in the ones where you're working digitally how you're trying to conjure that sort of texture when you're working digitally. Whereas when you're looking with stuff with um your older stuff i'm like there's colored pencils their ink the ink looks like it's some sort of dry brush maybe but then there's also some you know solid black inks and there's pencil and just like like you're using like the entire art kit you know yeah i just try to use everything that i have available and it's sort of like uh you know drawing on a sketchbook in a sketchbook and then you just apply everything you can to make one thing look cool and i'm just applying that to a complete page so that's what I, those are the tools i'm comfortable with and if a certain scene or character or, or or landscape looks better in watercolor as opposed to like a flat or a gradient or whatever else i'll go for it you know and i have, I have the freedom to do that um and you know working on this by myself that's also why i really appreciate collaboration you know and taking on the on the ultimates as a writer took me a little while to get used to because I, n- I had never written solely for somebody else to draw. Um, and that's something I, I didn't really want to do exclusively, you know, like the way say Ed Brubaker did. Ed Brubaker was a, a mm-hmm. complete cartoonist who did it all. And then he just pivoted to being a writer only. Um, and that to me yeah. uh, is cool if you can make it work, but I, I just, I couldn't do that. I, I could not do that. So, but once in a while, even though I go back to Copra and work on my own stuff, I do like to collaborate here and there just to sort of uh, not go insane. You know, not to just be in my own little bubble, my self-made bubble of comfort, which is cool, but I also want to challenge myself to do other things and work with other people while I can, you know? Mm -hmm. Well, I know that a lot of the reasons that some writer artists move to just being writers is economic and physical. Oh, sure. you can write a lot more comics in a short period of time than you can draw. And then from a physical standpoint, it is physically difficult. And like your body is just sort of like, I got to stop moving my hand now. Or your eyes are like, got to stop looking at this. It's a brutal. It's brutal. Yeah, no, I totally get that. That's why I, I like, I'm not uh, speaking against it or anything. No, because, I'm just amazed that you, that you don't have to. Like, it's like, it's like being an athlete, you know? Well, for me, writing actually takes longer than drawing. I could get through drawing a page and actually writing, constructing, typing, making it clear for somebody else to write. That to mm. me is like, that. that is real work. <laughs> drawing, don't get me wrong, <laughs> drawing is insane. Like drawing does take a lot of physical labor and uh, figuring out it's, it's solution based. It's, it's just sitting at the board for long periods of time based, but so is writing, you know? So to me, writing is just a, a muscle. I haven't worked as much. So maybe that's why I'm not as comfortable writing seven books a month, you know, and abandoning drawing. Plus I just love drawing. So, and mm-hmm. that's part of the language for me for telling a story when I'm plugged into a collaboration, that's different. It's a different job f- with different results. So I, I just do appreciate the process of comic book making. So, you know, so I'm sorry you missed out on the ultimates. It was, it was a fun gig to be had, but I think that's, that speaks more to the, the marketing value of comics, especially back in the day. It's like, there's so much stuff coming out constantly. 
you know, it's, yeah. it's, you know, you blink and you miss it. So, but I, I, I buy stuff based on the creative team and like we have publishers who will announce a series and not even tell you who's working on it. And I'm like, I, I don't fucking care, you know? Like, there's characters who I quote-unquote love who I haven't read in a lifetime because I don't care about the writer or artist working on them, and that's what matters to me yeah. the most. I'm not into a brand. Yeah, so, same. There you have same. it, right? Yeah, I always follow artists or creators or writers, cartoonists, whatever, but uh, not really characters. I haven't done that since since forever, really. I just Since childhood, fo- perhaps? Yeah, I mean, once I discovered <laughs> like the first few artists that I loved... That was it, man. I was hooked. I was following. Who were them. they? Guys like uh, Frank Miller, John Byrne, uh, Norm Brayfogle, the mostly the DC hmm. guys. Some Marvel stuff like John Romita Jr. when he was doing Daredevil. I was oh, like, yeah. I love that guy. I love that artist. Yep. Same with the writer when Anna Senti was writing that book yep. with him. I followed her no matter what she did. Um, I did a whole episode just about Anna Senti and JRJR's Daredevil s- series. So that that shows how much I love it. Yeah, it's it's great comics. They still hold up and it's a huge inspiration. Oh, yeah. I mean, I mean, it made me a comics fan. You know, I had comics before, but when I read those Daredevil issues early on, I mean, I was like, what, eight, nine or something. Oh, man. And. You know, I wasn't getting the subtext sometimes, yeah, sometimes no, but not really. But, you know, yeah. you go back and you read this stuff and you're like, oh, man, this is really excellent, like above par stuff. It's so good. It's inspirational for a reason. Sometimes you go back and you read stuff you loved and it, it doesn't hold up. It, it is what it is, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but something like Daredevil is really, really, um, I don't know. I just don't think it's talked about enough. I, I just love that stuff. Yeah, yeah, that's why one of the reasons we did it. I think a lot of people also seem to think that Frank Miller wrote some of the comics that were actually by Anne Nocenti. Um, oh, yeah, no. I wonder why that is. Uh, <laughs> but uh, I, I'm not blaming Miller, to be clear. I'm blaming the culture at large's sexism. Um, yeah, absolutely. You know, he's never done anything about that. But anyway. Um, well, he's, but al- yeah, he's like- also, he cast like a huge shadow. So mm. it was a tough act to follow. And, but, you know, fandom... You know, you know how they are. Of course, they're gonna they're gonna paint in broad strokes. You know, like they're gonna ignore Nascenti's legacy, even though those are, I think, the best Daredevil comics ever. <laughs> I agree. I you know? really do. And like, I mean, you can say like, you know, Miller gave the comic a new direction that allowed these other things to happen. Mm-hmm. Although that's probably because they would not have let Anne Nascenti come in and say, "Hey, I want to make Daredevil darker." They would be mm-hmm. like, "Shut up, woman." But like, yeah. But then the end result, though, is that her stuff is the best stuff to me. Is it is her, her and JRJR working together? I mean, just making that vacuum, making that vacuum cleaner into Jaws and like a legitimate threat yeah. is just like how do you do that? Um, yeah, and you I know, think... I see that in your work too. Like these mundane things that can go haywire. <laughs> That's probably in there. I mean, those Inferno issues were my bible. They still are, you know. Um, the thing about the thing about Nascenti, right? Just to focus on her for for a moment, is that to her it was a job, right? To her it was a gig. She came from editorial. She got this gig and she took it, and she did her own thing with it. I don't think she was thinking about the future of what these comics would mean to to her, to us. Would it, would they be collected? Would they be talked about in a podcast? several decades later 
I think it was just something to do passionately and it was a fun job, but it just had to be made, right? And so that spirit is the thing that prompted me to start Coper to begin with and do it at that at that steady rhythm where I could just pump out an issue and whether I was happy with it or not, it didn't matter. It had to go out the door. I had to pay my rent. Every issue was a month that yeah. I had to pay my rent with. And that's how I saw it. I saw it as a job. The flip side is that, yeah, it's my precious art project, right? That's how I could kind of treat it. But at the end of the day, I had to complete something, create an item and then sell it, right? That is commerce. That's just art versus commerce. That's, 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 that's the dynamic of comics, right? And, yeah. and they all push one way or the other, but I'm, I feel like I'm right in the center of that. And it's just funny how it's this Copra monster that has sustained me for nearly a decade. That's not nothing, you know? Mm -hmm. And it's because I was channeling that spirit of like, it's just got to get done. It, it, my feelings don't matter. It has to get out the door. But my feelings do matter to a certain extent to create the thing. I'm also not going to put out garbage or something that sure. I don't believe in. Like, I don't have an editor telling me something that I can or cannot do like we established before, but it had to, it had to come out one way or the other. Are there particular characters in cope in co I see, I keep pronouncing it wrong because you know, you read it I've in heard English both. and you're Yeah. I've okay, heard both. Well, yeah. Are there particular characters whose stories you're just like, I need people to understand this about this character where they feel, were like propelling you themselves? Uh, well, I mean, I feel a little bit of that with every character it's not just mm -hmm. one character i think after 12 issues of doing a huge adventure um i uh, i focused on a select set of characters just to get really into their point of view and those were some of my favorite issues because I, I got to slow down and dig a little deeper uh even though early, early on i'd say issue five or six i did start focusing on one character and that was the turning point for me creatively where I saw that, huh, I could, I could do this with all the other characters. I have a, a like a rich cast of, mm -hmm. of personalities that deserve a chance to be heard. And it's not the kind of characters that you see very often, you know, um, in, at least in, in modern mainstream American superhero comics, you know, right. it's, it's, it's multiracial, um, it's, you know, they come from a different class of people. Uh, and I just never saw that anywhere. And I just, that's what I want to talk about. I like those kind of people. Those are my friends. But I'm applying it to like crazy design, you know, crazy looking mercenaries doing crazy <laughs> shit. Like that's, that's the only thing, you know? Yeah. I'm not writing Slice of Life, but I am. I'm just applying it to a different scenario. I really like that. I mean... Is there what? What are the what? What when you're you got to design a a team of characters from scratch? Like, what are the dynamics, the team dynamics that you think are important? The kinds of characters that you think are necessary to bounce off of each other and like to shape that as like it's like you know like with an adventuring party in D and D, we're like okay, we need a tank, we need the you know we need someone who's this finesse, da 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 da. Like when you're creating that in Copra, like how are you deciding who makes up the team from a personalities and a skills, etc. Well, I think that's a thing. I mean, I just want to use the template of the basics, right? When you say the tank, yeah, that's just the big, the big dude, the muscle, right? Then you need 
the stealth, then you need the leader, and you need you know this and that. It's all it's all about different shapes and sizes and personalities. I just wanted it to be as diverse as possible. I wanted everyone's silhouette to be really distinct from one another, but even just on their own. Mm-hmm. Um, I wanted different personality types and temperaments, uh, and and the combination of both playing off one another. Now I, I've never played D anD D, but I suspect it it uses the same rules. You know, you're building your own your own cast and trying to make it as much fun for yourself and, and make everyone as diverse as possible. Am, am I wrong? Am I off in that? It seems like no, they share definitely. a lot of sensibilities. Yeah, I mean, for me, it's important for p- character personalities to not just be a uh, parallel of their powers. Like, just because this is the tank doesn't mean that they're like, have to be stupid necessarily or that they have to Mm -hmm. be someone who likes to fight first or they have to be like there's a lot of archetypes that i think it's only fun for you to work against but for as a player that doesn't necessarily mean it has to be that way as a reader but for me as a player i'm like i'm not i'm never gonna i love to be a bard i'm never gonna be your like tropey generic bard that's just not interesting to me Right. I I also try to play against type, but also I lean into type. And the, mm-hmm. I think the trick is just to um, scrape off the the cliches and just do something a little different, even if you're within type. I mean, mm-hmm. I mean, just just the concept of a team uh, of a, you know a team of super people. That's not greatly original, but if you scrape off some of the cliches and you apply something different to it then it becomes a different thing. You know, it's an, it's an evergreen concept. Uh, mm-hmm. And I think that's what I did with Copra, but also with the individual members and the villains and the cast. You know, there's like, there are office workers in Copra that I, I love as much as main characters. And I wish, and I will have um, issues that give me the opportunity to get into their lives. But again, that's why I'm going to, you know, I'm up to 40 issues and then maybe 50 and beyond. I just need the time and the space to, to, to give everyone the platform to tell their story, to, to share their point of view. And those that come back, the main characters to see that point of view develop and, you know, but also tell like a concise story. I don't want to just navel gaze at the same time. Mm-hmm. So it's just a lot. I'm, I'm juggling a lot, but I need the space to juggle in. And uh, I, th- I think that's just the advantage of Copra. That's the advantage of a serialized comic. That's another thing. It's like, I'm not writing for the trade, really. I'm writing for a long-term relationship, right? Like, you're engaged with these characters. You might like the first book. You might not come back. You might you might tap out after book three. You might come in in the middle of book five and and want to go backwards the way I, I do with many, many comics, you know? <laughs> Even though I try to make every issue as reader-friendly and enjoyable as possible, this is one story. You know, you do want to start from the beginning as raw as it is, I, I kind of can't look at the old issues too much, but uh, it's just one long narrative. So it is a relationship. You're you're devoting your time to these characters, to this to this story. But I wanna I wanna give back. I want that to be worth it. You know, sometimes I would read a comic, what like a lot of issues in, and I still uh, don't care. You know. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe because I'm looking for something that it doesn't offer, so that's not fair. Uh, but sometimes I just I'm, I'm, I just get either exhausted or bored easily, uh, and I just hope no one finds that in Copra. You know, I'm trying to <laughs> do my best 
every single issue. There's not a single issue that's like filler or like I just needed a break. It's like I'm trying to fucking kill it every single issue. <laughs> so I just mm-hmm. hope it comes through. I mean, one of the things that I really appreciate about the series is that you're not preoccupied with like having women look hot all the time at the expense of doing interesting shit with them. Mm-hmm. Like I'm looking at with like 38 and 39, which you were sent me some black and white uh, review copy of, which is fabulous to see. And I, I think the art looks really interesting and looking at in black and white, like, you know, there's panels where you see because of how people are fighting and their powers are using being used. Like it's way more interesting to look at someone's, like arms power musculature rippling effects you know like looking at i'm looking at what is this page 29 um when you're scrolling through things it can be hard to tell sometimes (laughs) but like you you know like trying to be like no we have to like see her ass and her boobs in the same panel and she has to be smaller than the men like that completely sacrifices character development and that sacrifices your ability to draw an interesting fucking fight scene um and that's and it's not to say that things can't be beautiful but like you're not because they they are and you also draw characters you know who are beautiful also but you don't feel like you have to make everything conventional like that and it doesn't get in the way of making interesting art the way you're doing it well, thanks. Yeah, I mean, that's just the style I draw in. I mean, uh, I think I'd have to go out of my way to draw like classic TNA material, you know, but some <laughs> people get away with it and tell a good story. And some of it is just like, that's just art. That's just they're probably you drawing just a cover, you know, it's not really to, in, in service of a story. And that's really what um, that's what I'm preoccupied with. I just want to tell a story. And if someone has to look not pin up then so be it. I don't really care about that. I just want to tell yeah. the actual what's happening and, and engage the reader in that way. Um, and that's just, that's the kind of artist I am. You know, different styles dictate something else, you know, uh, other artists, uh, you know, they, that's what they get off on. That's what they like. That's, that's how they tell a story. That's how they see the world. Uh, and that's fine too, but I'm, I'm more in your camp in that regard. Mm-hmm. Yeah, everything has its place, but I just I see it getting in the way of storytelling in a lot of ways that just feels really defeating. Um, but you know, I love that you're also the person who's like Grace Jones. Obviously, should be a superhero, so we're going to have Grace Jones in this comic. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a no brainer. <laughs> <laughs> like, why hasn't that happened before? Um, uh, you know, but when it comes to like mon- I don't want m- monster design, extra dimensional being design. You know, you have some of the most innovative and outlandish so i guess creature design like so where do you where do you start from when you're coming up with something completely non-humanoid uh well i mean i I try to think about where that humanoid concept came from uh you know whether it be from another dimension or just uh man-made within the story but i try to just make it fun for me to draw that's it's as simple as that but also if you're if you're talking about like say um beings that can't or don't exist in our world and you're thinking of abstracts why are you going to make it like a muscle-bound dude you know why are you going to limit yourself to just you know a guy in tights you know that's that's just kind of boring and it's just it you're just repeating yourself so i would i would rather play with shapes and try to make um the simplest shapes seem forceful or or threatening you know, I think that's way more interesting than just seeing like, you know, a, 
just the human body, you know, like I'm already drawing that. Why am I going to draw that mm -hmm. on top of that when I have to represent something otherworldly, you know, but I also don't want to make it like a, an obvious creature that you've seen before. I do try to, again, it just stems from me trying mm. to draw these abstract shapes. I, I try to keep myself interested and engaged so the reader can also feel that, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, it's just, you're, you're not limiting yourself to just another human form, because why would you even need to do that? Yeah, and that's the thing. It's like, I get it if you're just, like, raised on a steady diet of comic books, and that's what you think this thing should look like, but... That's not the case. If you look at anything else, anything else, I mean, just go to a museum, open up a fashion magazine, watch a documentary on Klaus Nomi, out any, hmm. anything, do anything but look at a comic book. Just, yeah. just to get inspiration. I mean, speaking of Kirby, that's what Kirby did. He would just open yep. up a book from his library, flip through it, and then make something. Just make yeah. something. Just yeah. make something different. You know, why are you going to look what I mean, I understand the value of trying to look like everyone else in a in a in a when you're in a work for hire situation. But other than that, why? Why are you going to do that? Why do you want to blend in and assimilate other than to be employed? Right. If we're talking about the non class element of it, where you, you know, you just need to have a job outside of that. Let's talk about the artistic merit. Of, of this thing. And maybe that's why you and I don't respond to certain books, certain lines mm -hmm. of books, certain companies. But it's like, why are all these people who are artists trying so hard to not be individual? You know, and I'm not coming at it from like a sensitive high art place. I'm talking about like, why do you want to look like everybody else? That does not make any sense to me. And so you apply that to designing a villain and that's where you're going to get. You know, you see it in the work. The proof is in the work. And I yeah. just don't understand it. That's that's a huge divide. You know, I could appreciate um, house styles. I, 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 I really appreciate the impulse and the, the need to be employed. I get that. I don't look <laughs> down upon that at all. I get that. All these guys and girls, they need to be employed, right? I get that. But beyond that, just to, just take a peek beyond that, you don't need to look like everybody else. And that's where, like, I think I mentioned the art snob. And that's, you get art snobs from all sides, you know? Yes. Everyone's looking down on everybody else. And that's why the landscape could sometimes be a little depressing, you know? Um, but I just do not understand how, how aggressive this looking down is, especially when it comes to art, you know? Uh, I just... That's why I have to disconnect sometimes and uh, just not worry about that stuff because it ultimately doesn't matter. It only matters in as much as it affects me, really. But when I'm actually drawing, I, I'm not thinking about any of that stuff, you know. But I don't know. I, I think I just unloaded mm -hmm. a bunch. No, that's <laughs> so, good. So if you I... want to unpack it little by little, I'm, I'm all for it. <laughs> but all, I'm thinking about this stuff all the time, you know. Yes, and that is how you ended up making a diagram, which is sort of how this conversation, I'd been nagging you to come back on the show for a while, but um, you had posted a diagram on Twitter where you were, uh, as a personal diagram, this is your tweet, this is a personal mm -hmm. diagram for comic book art styles, being a list maker and constantly thinking about this topic. I drew it up with all my favorites as examples. And yeah, this is always on my mind, so I wanted to lay it out to give it some shape and help me understand it. Now, I'm going to post this map in the, uh, in the, um, Descri episode description so folks can see this but uh 
It's the breakdown, you know, kind of Venn diagram and simultaneous XY axis chart for plotting uh, different artist styles on the axis of, on the one hand, cartoony, on the other hand, realistic, and then on the other axis, it's messy versus clean. And I was just like, oh, what an amazing way to map the unmappable. And like, even if I don't necessarily always agree with the where somebody might land on it, I, mm-hmm. I, 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 I always see why. And I think it's interesting for understanding what gets focused on what the market looks like. You yeah. know, one of my critiques, one of my critiques of the problem with current and recent house style is that it thinks it's doing realism and it 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 it, it isn't actually mm-hmm. anyway, but also why is realism your number one priority? Right, right, uh, right. Which is not to say that realism can never be good. There's people on the realism, high on the realistic access who do awesome shit, right? But definitely Absolutely. some of the things that get talked about as realism, I'm like, it isn't. Like, it's, um, it's traditional heroic uh, art, maybe in some ways, but realism involves fat people and mm-hmm. like, you know, things that aren't completely like drawn from Hollywood or like, it's just like, and or and also realism, like the photorealist urge is sometimes characterized described as on certain arts that aren't actually realistic they're just really detailed which is great but not realism necessarily etc anywho <laughs> right no but I, I mean i totally get that on the topic of realism i think that there's there's uh there are artists that draw realistic but they there's a natural bent to it as opposed to something that's just traced or referenced from a photo too heavily there's a huge difference there that the mm-hmm. many worlds of differences between those kind of artists. I mean, in the map, I mapped out, uh, you know, like Jorge Zafino or Jose Luis Garcia Lopez. Those, those two gentlemen are super realistic to me. Jaime Hernandez, you know, who's also cartoony. I mean, Jaime is exceptional on every level, but then you have the dominant style today where it's like, it's, it's realistic, but it's also very stiff you know, there's no like real life um, hand guiding it. There's no experience almost. It's all very technically sound, but a little dead. And it doesn't help that the coloring and the lettering adds to that certain mm-hmm. deadness at times. Um, but that's precisely why I made this graph because I just wanted at least so I could understand what style even is. Uh, you know, things like manga was omitted from the list because I, to be frank, I wasn't even thinking about that. But in retrospect, manga kind of combines it all. You know, it's realistic body in the classic, say like Akira, realistic proportions and bodies and detail and backgrounds, but cartoony faces, right? Mm-hmm. So where does that fall on my graph? Which, like you mentioned, is super personal. It is my opinion. It's funny to me. It's telling that people took it as like the law, like how could you do this? I don't agree. And I'm like, I just made this to open a discussion, not to have a fight, not to say that this is the law, right? Let's talk about why you disagree. That's what I prefer. But also I found it interesting that people thought it was like a list, like a, like a a qualitative list, like a judgment call. That, and it's like, that's not the point. It's a spectrum. Like no one is better than the other. Just because I, your name is literally written a, above another name doesn't make it better. Like, that's ridiculous. You missed the point. And unfortunately, that's fandom. And that's a lot of prose. I think that some people don't understand that you don't have to rank things on a best to worst scale. 
And that's like the worst kind of criticism. I'm about to rank it on the best throw. So that's the worst kind of criticism is like, what is the best? And this is the worst. And these are the top 10 artists. And this is the bottom 10 artists. Like, what even is that? That's not even engaging with the, with the art. Yeah. So yeah, they look at a graph and they said, if you're near the top of the page, that means you're the best. Like, what? Are you yeah. high? Yeah, they don't even read what, what I'm trying to explain. Yeah, so in me trying to simplify something, I just made it more complicated for people. And I, I get it, fans, maybe they don't need to know about art. No, they <laughs> do. They, it's okay. going to kill well, the industry. Like, sorry. <clears throat> Well, I don't, I don't know. Okay, well, there's that issue. My What I was going to say is that what kills me is that artists don't know about art. Now, I'm not here to... Yes like explain to you the history of comics your interest levels may vary in who came before and what that represents for you but come on man come on when you start talking about like kirby and old-fashioned terms that means you don't know shit you're just outing yourself as a dumbass you know when you're just thinking that's old-fashioned or too simple it's like like that's actually the opposite of the fact (laughs) you know He's anything but simple. Kirby was anything but simple. He's not yeah. old-fashioned. He's timeless. He captures a spirit of several decades, but that mm-hmm. doesn't tie him to those decades. So, so and the, and these are professionals that I've had arguments with. I mean, and it it fucking kills me to be honest. But I try not to go down that path. I want to understand. I want to be positive. And so, something like this graph just starts the conversation, starts the dialogue. Mm-hmm. And these are only the the artists that I loved in my formative years. I didn't include people that I discovered along the way or current artists or my peers, which I would love to do. But come on, you know they're just going to start like complaining about like, why am I not, you know what I mean? Like, I don't want anyone to get the wrong impression if I do something with this graph. You know, if I expand it or do something, I would have to be extra clear that this is this doesn't mean I like you or don't like you. It's just how I see it, right? It's just as a way to discuss style. So it's just kind of funny how even when you when I put up these names of like pretty well known names, it's like there's just there's always a um, uh, a disconnect with what those styles even are, you know. But whatever, as long as the discussion starts somehow, I guess that's a good thing. Yeah, I loved this because it made people talk about art for once. Yeah, well, right. To your point, um, I think art should be discussed, obviously. I mean, that's just such an obvious thing. And I know that there's like part of the discourse in in the critical circles where critics aren't mentioning artists or even talking about the art. And I just don't think those are real criticisms or real pieces. Those are just kind of like promotional write-ups if you could even call them write-ups most some of them are just copy and paste from from you know press junkets or whatever Mm -hmm. um so they 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 fill a role that has nothing to do with actually criticizing and looking deeply into art or comics at all of course they have an easier sorry no 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 go ahead they have an easier Uh, what they have an easier time getting a press pass to a comics convention than I do, interestingly, because, well, yeah, of you course. know, exactly. <laughs> well, because criticism isn't press, right, apparently, but just stenography is press. So there you are. Right. Um, I, but it's unfortunate. And that's the way the companies are going to are going to write it. You know, back in the day, um, Gary Groth used to send the Comics Journal to Jim Shooter. Jim Shooter used to read the Comics Journal all the time. He had a subscription. <laughs> 
And that eventually stopped, of course, because the comic journal just got really savage, especially after the lawsuits and all that stuff. But, but, you know, comics used to engage with criticism, whether it be bad or good. And that hasn't been part of the, the case for a long time. So I don't, I don't, that doesn't surprise me that companies don't even regard that, uh, you know, whether it be a podcast or places like the Comics Journal site or, or individual blogs, uh, they don't mm-hmm. see that stuff. They just want the the clicks. They just want um, information and data to go out there to sell stuff, just commercials. I mean, it's not surprising. It's unfortunate. I'm sorry you can't get a press pass. Yeah, I mean, I, 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 it depends, and I, have, I, I guess, and also there's particular press people at particular places. Like Clark at DC is lo- is lovely, but like there's also plenty of people who just don't get it. Um, yeah, I, I think, think. Yeah. Oh, go ahead. I see, and I think the fact that I can actually make a case for why something is good might make them, I don't know, maybe sell something to people who aren't just going to be like, I buy this because of brand. But I, a lot of places only want you to buy it because of brand, not because of the fact that it's good. So. Yeah, I agree. I mean, the unfortunate possibility is that they might not even read those things. That They're just going to buy the brand and these companies just want these write-ups just to have a place in the algorithm. You know what I mean? Like they don't they don't really expect anyone to read anything and be convinced to purchase a thing. And even if they did purchase it, like who cares? Diamond's doing the work. Let the local comic shop do the work. Let the word of mouth do the work maybe. But the write-ups, I th- you know, I think maybe through the podcast, you know, the, uh, this form, this platform could definitely reach more people than like say a well-written essay about the virtues of storytelling in comics, <laughs> you know, well, like, I, yeah, you know, that's not for me. I, you know, uh, I prefer that, but that's just the way the industry is at the moment. Unfortunately, hopefully that'll change. I don't know what could, what we could do to change that, but I don't know. It's where the money goes apparently. Well, I, um, I'm really happy that you want to have people talk about art, you know, and I've had critics tell me the reason that they don't talk about art more in their reviews is because they don't know how to. I think some people are very schooled in how to talk about superheroes, Hmm. but we don't really have art education in schools. And we don't have like, you know, I, I, I studied art in college and I studied art in high school and I used to make art and I mean, visual art, I still make art in other ways, but like, uh, people don't have that in their toolkit, so they have a hard time doing it. And then one of the right. things that you and I were talking about, I was fetching because I was like, I invite artists onto my podcast, and they oftentimes won't even say no. Whereas writers, they just they're like, hell yeah! So you know, if you're a listener and you're like, Ilana, how come you have all all these writers and not as many artists? I assure you, I have tried. <laughs> yeah, I don't. I mean, I can't speak for anyone but myself, but I I suspect it's because you know artists might be. Shire? I don't know. I mean, to be honest, cartoonists in general, are it's just an introverted bunch. You know, I think conventions might be as social as some of them mm-hmm. get. And, uh, you know, some of this stuff is not comfortable, but you got to do it. You know, whether it comes naturally to you or not, you just, you don't have to do anything, but you should, because why not? You know, it's part of, the, of, of a discussion. You know, if you think of it as like, well, fuck promotion. Well, then sure, fuck promotion. But talk about your art. Talk about your point of view. You know, especially if you're, especially if you're independent. Especially if you're doing your own thing and trying to carve your own path. If you're not excited about it, why should anyone be excited about it? You know, and it's part yeah. of the marketing muscle of of the industry. You, like you have to beat your own drum loud. And if that means getting on as many podcasts as possible, sure. But do the ones that you're comfortable with. You know. 
I mean, I'm not on every single podcast. I just want to do the ones that I feel like I could express the things I could express, you know, mm -hmm. and, and sidebar, thank you for your patience and trying to get me on. I know it's been years in the making, so <laughs> I'm glad <laughs> I'm happens. here, but no, but, but, but you know, I, I was okay. So on my Patreon, I have a, a list of how to uh, pencil and ink and just every process in making comics. The final installment was self-publishing and a, and a mm -hmm. portion of that was marketing self-marketing which is a dirty word right but it's just the way it is it doesn't have to be a dirty word you don't have to be a cheese ball about it you know you don't have to put people off just talk about the stuff you love you know just stuff about just talk about the stuff you like and why you like it it's really that simple you don't have to be like a huckster you don't have to be a jerk you know you could be those things if you want if that's who you are but maybe that's why you don't get as many artists because they're either shy or they don't have much to say about their art, you know, I or think they just, it's also they a sweatshop. Yeah. They don't have to explain shit. It's just a job, you know, like you're not interviewing artists with a point of view. You're interviewing like people who just have a job. They're well, just, I don't even, you know? yeah, but I don't, uh, but that's actually not what I'm getting at though. It's getting at like, I think people are so overworked that they like literally like, because the, you know, they get paid shit. The page timing that you have to deliver on is like crazy I think a lot, I, 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 I think some people just don't feel like they have time. And then I've also had, whereas writers have, it's for, for a lot of people, it is less time consuming. That's why they're able to do more books at once. And yeah. then other people, I just know that they don't like feel super confident having extensive conversations in English because it's not necessarily their first language. And I, I get how having long conversations in languages that aren't your first language can be exhausting. I do get mm -hmm. that. But please, artists, come on the show. I want to talk about what you're making. Um I mean, that's what I'm interested in listening to, you know, I I look yeah. for podcasts just to seek out artists and creators in general. But, you know, I, you're totally right. I, I hardly ever hear artists, um, whether they be current or old school, you know, I, I have a list of people that are old school and still sort of working. Maybe they're, they're on the fringes. Maybe they're doing just commissions or something, but I want to hear their story. I want to hear yeah. their, their their process, their their history, where they are now. I think that is super interesting. You know, that's one of the things that attracted me to comics to begin with. It wasn't the characters. I mean, it was obviously the characters, the, the, the drawing, the art, but also the people. Like I recognized early on that there was people making these things and it just made it possible for me to to pursue that as a job as a career like mm -hmm. you know like so i want to hear these people's stories i've i've myself have tracked down some of these people from obscurity like no one was interviewing them and i just it wasn't like i put on an interview hat and i'm like i'm going to become an interviewer now it's like no no i just want to ask you questions i just want to know who you are you know because even the letters pages of old comics don't talk about you but talk mm -hmm. about you now i want to hear about it i want to i want to explore these things i want to examine your style and your point of view if you got one if you don't tell me okay. one of those tell me one of those uh, uh, conversations like you had and what you got from one of them if you feel comfortable well, telling I mean, me well, sh well sure i mean the first one the first major one first one ever was trevor von eden from the who is uh, an artist in the 70s 80s he co-created black lightning he drew thriller the comic book uh batman comics he was a big dc guy and then over the 90s, you saw less and less of his work. And then the aughts crept in. And then you maybe saw one book or two. Mm. And his style was so individualistic. I loved it. I found it so odd that it was even published because it was so mind-blowing and different. 
uh, and yet really classical at the same time. It just hit the perfect pitch, right? It just juggled these two worlds that I really uh, connect with. Oh, and wow. I, and I lo- I'm looking and I, at his stuff. I see it. I see it. Wow. Yeah, I, I looked him up and it took me a while to find him. Uh, through a connect through several connections who may have you know ex editors who might have known where he is now whatever and then I mean I just opened the floodgates we just opened up a huge dialogue and it turned into an interview and it was published in the comics journal uh, which to me was like awesome to me was like that was an achievement in itself just because I loved the journal so much and uh, you know, looking back on the interview itself, I could have done it a little better because I didn't know how to interview. I didn't know the, this is an art form too. And I just wasn't aware of it. I was just treating it like a fan who wanted to talk to one of his heroes, but also not alienate him. You know, I wanted to examine his work, but not push him back into obscurity. Mm-hmm. And ever since he's, he's been employed, he's gotten work here and there. He, he did a stint with uh, all time comics first published by um fanographics and then floating world and now he's working on new thing i still keep in touch with him he's still great he's his art still rocks and so that's one of my examples of like how just communicating with people uh could be beneficial for everyone you know companies older fans new fans it, it's never too late to discover these people you know well, thank you for uh, pointing me to his work because one, I totally see the influence in your work, and two, it's really freaking cool and interesting. Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, he worked. Yeah. I think he started at, at DC when he was like seventeen or eighteen. He was he was practically a kid, right? He was a mm. teenager. Um, but it was later on in the eighties when he started really coming into his own. I mean, it's really, really great, sharp, sophisticated stuff that's still fun to look at. Uh, he definitely has a point of view that's still carried to this day. And uh, I just, I love it. I love it. And that's one of the many, many examples <laughs> that, you know, of just workers who, who, who litter the industry, you know, but we're bombarded as an industry, as fans, as workers, we're bombarded with new material constantly. What the pandemic took two months out of that. And that was a weird rarity, mm. but we're constantly being fed new information. And so it's easy to forget about that stuff, you know? Yeah, yeah. It's easy to forget about the, the what came before and not see it as like a nostalgia thing. You know, this is art's art, man. You know, you either like it or you don't, but at least at least talk about it. It's there. That's what comics are. So yeah, I don't I don't get the 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 critics impulse to ignore the art because they don't know how to talk about it. Not, you know, there's that's not entirely wrong-headed. They at least they're willing to admit that. That's great and uh it's up to certain people to tell them why it does matter. You know, <laughs> not not to like berate them because they might they might honestly not know and it might seem crazy to us, but they just don't know. You know, just like certain people don't know how to read a comic. They just see it as yeah. like information on a page and they're confused and thus put off. It's not really, there's, there, there, it is a language. It's easy to learn, but it's not impossible. It's, you know, it is a language. Uh, so speaking of what came before, I would be remiss not to ask you, like, what is essential 
to Suicide Squad character, Deadshot, and what is essential to telling a Deadshot story? Um, I don't know. I've never written a Deadshot story ever but you've in my read life. a lot of it but you've read a lot of it like <laughs> no me. i'm trying to i'm like, trying to get out of i'm trying to get out of that you know uh no I've, that's fine you know no 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 we don't uh, I, I can cut this and we don't have to talk about that at all i'm just sort of like who would be interesting to talk about this with like obviously you i've been reading a lot of it you also you know you're a fan but we don't have to talk about it it's no totally no, no. Fine. I, I mean I, I was kind of kidding because of the whole corporate connection i try to not be as obvious in my uh analogs you know i try to like take from a lot and mix it up with what I make on my own. Um, but, you know, the Suicide Squad, for, especially from the 80s, by John Ostrander and Luke McDonald and later Kim Gale, th- that's a very specific riff that I started using early on for Copra, even though it turned into something else. So a character like mm-hmm. Deadshot, um, you know, it, it the basics are there. Like, he looks cool. He's got a cool death wish motivation so in in a genre setting he's perfect um but but there's a lot of layers to him you know there's a familial layers uh there's also uh depressed layers um and not every writer nails that because at the end of the day you just have to draw a cool guy shooting stuff but if you could inject a little character that that's in his history that you know he has a rich history and I think that's what makes a good Deadshot story. You know, I haven't read mm-hmm. any of the new stuff, so I can't speak to any of the new books. But that's just my love for the original. Well, for what it's worth for listeners, I really did enjoy the most recent Suicide Squad series, actually. But um, one, well, one of the things I was, I'm looking at when I look at your art is always there's a question of, like, what are the features of somebody that you choose to draw? What are the... What are the features that you're like, we're going to kind of go abstracted on this? Like, how are we how are we carrying this particular face? Like, what are the key shapes and places of it? Well, it's it's in, in direct opposition to what's around them, like what their environment is, who their teammates are, who their family is. So, in you know, I could I could pick any one of my characters out and explain why I, I chose that specific design. But a big part of it is also having it be easy for me to draw a lot. You know, I don't want to make a super, super complex design unless, you know, unless I have to, unless the story calls for it, but I Mm kind of want to make something that's punchy and iconic and, and recognizable quickly. And most of the stuff I like falls under that. And so I try to adhere by those rules. Like one of the things that I really like is like for a character like Boomer, I can always his glasses wire frame to me is like so important to the character design and how you've done it because like that zigzag of the metal wire is what makes those wire frames 70s, which mm-hmm. is like to me part of a central part of like the sort of aesthetic that he has, you know, mm-hmm. regardless of what decade a story takes place in, he takes place in the 70s. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, yeah. So I'm like, oh, those glasses frames to me, that's like a, that's a character feature that you just always have to have in there. And I love the detail of the fact that I can tell the fucking material of his glasses from how you've done the nose bridge. <laughs> yeah, I try to, you know, I try to put those details in. I don't go too heavy on details usually. I just try to have one, at least one distinctive feature in each of the characters, whether it be something they're wearing or their own face. You know, I think 
I think a lot of European comics really excel at that, at making faces mm. very different from one another, usually because they cartoonify things. You know, um, everything looks exaggerated. You know, like I was talking about Matadi earlier, all, all of his faces are super different. You know, and in a team book, different faces is essential. You know, it's not like I'm drawing Avengers where it's like three blonde guys <laughs> and like five girls. You know what I mean? Like with mm-hmm. the same build, it's like I want everyone to be as different as possible as much as, much as I could, as much as I could make it. You know, it, it's still I'm always angling towards it. That's the goal. Yeah, yeah. But I, I, and I, but I, but I also think this is one of the examples of like how you not adhering to the generic sort of how style lets you do these things better, you know, um, and being able to see the individuality of the characters and and how they communicate. So I I really do appreciate those little those little details in everyone, and you got to have a little tuft of hair for Grace Gracie, you know, <laughs> yeah. and like um, I love the helmet design for Were. Like I'm just what an interesting. I, I kind of associate it with like a freight train, maybe. Like, what, what are the shapes that you're playing with there? Uh, maybe like old football gear, um, just uh, cool machinery that's ever evolving. That's why uh, I've never really explained this in, as a story thing, but what you know, his his armor is constantly shifting. Uh, artistically, I reason it because it's it's it actually goes back to Kirby. I once had to draw a big Barda, and I wanted to reference her for a commission. I wanted to reference her costume mm-hmm. from the source, from him, not from anyone else. But I look at those issues, and her costume was different in every issue, mm-hmm. in every panel, rather. Uh, mm-hmm. And that kind of blew my mind and amused me to no end. I love that concept because ultimately these are just drawings. Have fun with it, you know. I think. Going back to the, the to the realism style, I think that stems from um, fans wanting literalism. You know, they just want things to be as realistic as possible, and it stem, it stems from Stanley's dialogue to Neil Adams uh, to a, even Alan Moore. I think the 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 charm of Alan Moore's work is that it is realistic sounding, at least. Mm-hmm. Um, and and so. So when you get something like Big Barda by Kirby, that throws that realism out the window. And maybe that's why fans gravitated away from that sort of work because they just they were just addicted to realism. And that's why we are where we are now. Anyway, Big Barda were I wanted to do that because I figured I got to draw this guy for many pages for many issues. <laughs> I want to make it as fun as possible. I don't care if like a certain wire doesn't bend in the specific way that one panel has, but then the next it does. It's like, I just want to make a cool drawing. You know, I want individual panels to look cool, but then when they form a unit of the page and then the double page spread as a unit and then the individual issue as a unit, that all has to work. Uh, and for, for an example, for like War as an example, that's just, those are just the rules that I set for that character and specifically. As opposed to others, you know, I try to be consistent with other characters too, but why not have fun, man? These are just drawings. Hmm. Why do you think, as I have theories, uh, fans get hung up on realism as like the proper metric for judging art? I think because I haven't really given this too much examination, but I, I suspect that it's because because they don't know art. So that's just the basic kind of go-to when it comes to art. 
you know, it's kind of like, think of like your typical relative who might look at a drawing and it's like, mm-hmm. is it a super realistic um, still life of a bunch of flowers, you know, or, or fruit? Then, oh, that's nice. That's good. You could recognize it as a, as a basic human citizen. You could just look at that and, be, and, and, and understand its quality. Oh, it's realistic. You know, but if you put like a Picasso in front of them, they might be like, oh, that looks like a kid drew it. And that's just your classic difference, right? And so you apply that to like fandom, they might not get why like, I don't know, someone like Sam Keith might be cool. They might lean a little bit more to like Alex Ross. Yeah, they you know sure I mean? do. Even though I really like his stuff, they sure do. <laughs> no, and listen, it's all, uh, listen, it's yeah. all... It's all in proportion to what's going on at the time, right? Alex Ross really hit it big at a time when everything... I mean, he's one of those 90s guys I was talking about. He was he he, he really stood out because everything else is, looked like image, right? Mm-hmm. So he really stood out, right? But now that everyone kind of... Now that he's the standard, something else needs to stand out, I feel like. Some, you know, it... So the opposite is going to stand out from that. You know, will it stick? Will it be a fan favorite? I don't know. I don't think so. Because we do have a lot of um, opposing examples to like an Alex Ross, which is already kind of like, I don't know how influential he is at the moment. But a lot of people are influenced whether they know it or not. It's just that realism. It's just they want to put, you know, uh, familiar shapes in a realistic setting. You know, they just want to make human ass looking people in these ridiculous <laughs> costumes. That to me doesn't uh, make for like fun comics, really. But I mean, you know, Marvel's is fun, you know, because I'm yeah. reading it as I'm reading it in context of the times. I get it. You know, it's good. But when it became like the language of comics, that's when it's like, all right, I, it's not for me. It's not. But you could say that for anything. You know, back in the mm-hmm. day, lots of people were aping Kirby. That was the language. So I get why people might wanted to get away from that and pivot to Neil Adams. Even though at first, Neil Adams was not liked. I should point yeah. out, fans did not like Neil Adams at first. But anyway, he dominated. That's interesting. Yes, he did. He I, dominated. Two, 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 two st- comic artist story regarding that. So Sienkiewicz, who, you know, is certainly on the one of the most immediately recognizable artists in comics. Mm-hmm. He, and stop me if you've heard this one before, but like when he first applied to work at DC, which is where he wanted to work because he grew up as a DC kid and he loved Neil Adams, they were like, uh, you're just a Neil Adams clone, so maybe come back when you have something more unique. Now, right now, it blows my mind that they didn't say, you're a Neil Adams clone, we will hire you and therefore be able to expand our Neil Adams-ishness. Yeah. But uh, they rejected him and he goes over to Marvel and then he starts really trying to be his own man. And next thing you know, he has completely singular art that looks nothing, well, minimally minimally like Neil Adams and is like really unique and beautiful and interesting. Um and then eventually they let him back out DC a little bit at the edges, but like it blew my mind. Yeah, I, I don't think I knew that about the DC um, him being turned down by DC, which is weird because yeah, they did have Neil Adams clones. You know, they had Rich Buckler mm-hmm. and Mike Nasser and stuff like that. But yeah, he did go to Marvel and develop his own style. You know, in a few years, yeah, he definitely had the uh, the ro- the room for growth. So, I mean. I love that. I love those kind of stories, you know? 
I just love that that mm-hmm. the, some a place like Marvel could sort of or DC in, in certain eras could give you the opportunity and the space to do that. Again, it's like up, you know, speaking of Trevor Von Eden, it's like a young kid from the Bronx who just got a job working in comics. That's exciting. That's cool. He fed his family that way. You know, and then he got to express himself further. That's you know, I can't dunk on that. That's awesome. You know, so mm-hmm. that that's where I come from when I when I I think about the employment factor of these things. You know, if you could squeeze in something different and cool, awesome. But uh, you know, I I have to remind myself that this isn't these people's jobs. You know, to like further the art form. That's a privilege I have. You know, uh, so I don't know. I try to always keep that in mind. I I, I agree with you as to why realism gets gets treated as like the goal and the right measure to measure art in i also think a piece of that is that um realism is seen as more mature and whereas cartoony is seen as for kids and Mm -hmm. things that are more mature are seen as being better right um and it's also sort of like for men and obviously that is superior to things that are for girls. God, God forbid. Um, <laughs> right. So I don't know. It just, yeah. 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 I think that, <clears throat> excuse me. I think that that has been changing a little bit in certain pockets of the industry. Uh, maybe not as much as it should and it's long overdue, but that's what I mean by like a lot of different styles are coming in. You know, I know DC has like a line of YA novels, you know, and mm-hmm. I think those books employ a different style altogether. That's totally divorced from like the Wednesday Warrior crowd. Yeah, um, and that's that's good. You know, I think there should be that diversity. You know, mm-hmm. I think that Wednesday Warrior crowd. Um, you know, it's very specific. I don't know where it's going. I don't know where it's going to be. Uh, it doesn't seem like it's changed much, um, except numbers wise, quantity wise. But I don't know. As long as these companies are hiring, uh, that's that's a positive sign, right? <laughs> well, yeah. So tell me a bit more about like you know you've gone from being completely self published basically to to doing work with Image and like how that's changed how you've released your comics and your your work. Well, yeah. Well, early on when I started self publishing, Bergen Street Comics was a comic store in Brooklyn, and they started releasing com- uh, little compendiums, like three-issue bumper editions, you know, just to support, just to help out. They got behind it. They were friends of mine. Uh, I worked at the store briefly. Uh, I was in their world. They were in my world, so they supported that, and then they expanded to becoming a publisher, uh, primarily of Copra, like selling six-issue collections. They eventually took on Chuck Forsman's Revenger. They were looking to expand a few years really like down it. the line. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's it's great stuff. They had a as a publisher, they had a point of view. They knew what they liked, and they were a small, a tight, lean, mean unit. And I loved it. We were a tight unit. Went to shows together. We were table together. It was great. But that ended. They stopped publishing, and I still self published the single issues. So I had no one to publish the collections. And that's when Image stepped into the picture. However, because they were taking over the books, I also wanted to get away from self-publishing because it was just taking up too much of my time. I'm sure. I wanted to just, you know, 31 issues in, plus I just wanted to concentrate on drawing and working on other projects as well. So I was like, why not have Image 
who's plugged into that Wednesday Warrior ecosystem. Let's see how Coper performs, you know, in the Diamond catalog as issues. Because I have a, I had a pretty good um, batting average with that, with like the um, the lapsed mainstream reader who discovered mm. Copra and was like, this is great. And they were on board, you know? So I had all sorts of different readers. Chief among them were the Wednesday Warriors. So I'm like, I have a good chance of surviving this thing. And I just, I just wanted to know what it felt like, right? Um, I wanted to have an issue come out every month in the Diamond catalog and be in stores that I wasn't before. I wanted like the small shops in every state to carry my book um a few differences happened you know uh stores are now super they 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 order very tightly you know they only order uh what are going to be sure hits or for for subscribers and what i found that even if you wanted a coper subscription they wouldn't order it for you they were either unable to (laughs) they would say or they were unwilling And this happened, it was reported to me that it happened several times. This wasn't just an isolated incident. So here I am trying to bust my ass, trying to make issues happen and spread the word and doing my own marketing thing. And, um, and just stores weren't buying it. Enough stores were buying it. So it was doing okay. But then the pandemic hit. And so my latest issue was stuck in a warehouse and I couldn't do anything about it. And just that lack of control just put me in the position to reconsider self-publishing. I just wanted that control back where, you know, if I wasn't in your store, that's okay. I got my own list of stores that want the book. If the book is stuck at a, at a warehouse, don't worry. I have to answer for that. Not Image, not Diamond, nobody mm-hmm. else. I wanted to answer for it because I was just getting frustrated at my lack of answers, you know. And it was a crazy time last March, last April, last May, when the pandemic first hit, you know, we, we didn't know there was going to be an industry. I mean, you know, how it was, it was nuts. We didn't yeah. know what we were going to yeah. be as an art form. I was just getting ready to just go to, the, you know, Xerox my comics and staple them myself and then ship them to five people I know, you know what I mean? So when everything died down, the smoke cleared, I decided to take back the single issues operation and just start re you know restart uh self-publishing and shipping it myself and distributing it myself but image still kept the books let them handle the books let them handle that operation those are two different businesses same as before bergen took care of the books now image is going to retain all that stuff you know so they have uh you know if a store is interested they could still go to diamond they could still order their books in the usual channels but for the issues which is the more the up-to-date version of the story, uh, you got to get that through me. You know, you could, you know, anyone could reach me directly through all social media. My, my email's available. I'm going to print them myself. I'm going to continue the story no matter what. And Image is going to continue doing the uh, collections. And that's where I'm at right now. That's really great. Like, best of both worlds. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, there's no way I could have done the, the collection by myself anyway, and I'm glad Image uh, kept that because um, that's that's what they're good at, right? The the single issue Wednesday Warrior uh, concern is a different monster altogether. 
that's something that everyone wrestles with at one point or another. And I, I did fine for 31 issues. I dealt with my own single issues and it's fine. I mean, that's how I paid my bills, right? So I'm just back to it. And I'm just going to have to get used to the notion that that's part of the attraction of the Cobra thing, right? Which is you're getting it directly from a creator. Um, the lines of communication are open and it's just a more intimate thing. I thought before when I went to Image, I'm like, oh, it doesn't matter. I think the story is strong enough. Fans are are into the characters enough. It could survive uh, a shift into into the Image model. And people did stay on board, but when I came back to self-publishing, you could you could feel the wave of relief that people had of just like, oh man, the paper stock is back, and oh yeah, man, this is, is you're selling yeah. it you're selling it through Etsy again, and oh my god, I'm getting the the package directly from you, and and that's what I did over the holidays. I'm just like printing out labels, going to the post office, and shipping it, you know, amidst uh, uh, the pandemic and the holidays and the postal service. Uh, scares you know like i'm just trying to do my best to put my book out there and have it not die on the vine like a lot of books do a lot of books you know whether it be through image or smaller publishers it's it's not easy out there so i get it but i'm hard-headed i'm stubborn i gotta get my book out there no matter what i love it it's it's exciting well uh let us let me know what else is coming up because it sounds like you might have some other things coming up that you would want to tell our listeners Oh, yeah. Uh, just uh, I don't think it's been announced yet, but um, I have a story in a Superman anthology coming up. Uh, it's called Superman Red and Blue. It's sort of like Batman Black and White. Uh, and I will be writing, drawing, lettering, coloring the entire thing. And uh, I got to say, I'm super excited about it. Oh, fuck. That was a pun. Holy shit. I got to I got to <laughs> I got to watch myself. But this is really like a dream gig. I mean, you know, like we were talking about like little kid comics, what you discovered, you know, and those early John Byrne Superman comics were super formative for me. So I loved, I loved those comics to death. Um, so it was a chance for me to sort of um, express my, what I think of Superman as a character in a pages, essentially. So it's going to be awesome. That's exciting. I, I'm really looking forward to reading that. That's cool, cool, cool. Yeah, I've seen some creative stuff coming up with bringing in different creative teams there. Yeah, and that that's the thing. They're open to having someone like me work for them on their flagship title. Maybe not flagship, but one of their iconic characters. characters you know, yeah. I mean, it's Superman. I'd say their flagship is Batman, but Superman is right there. Um and the fact that they're willing to have my vision be uh, represent their character is awesome, I think. And again, it just uh, yeah. speaks to like, it, it, it doesn't matter. It's a comic. Like, take a risk. Do something different. Um, and I think it's going to be great. I think, uh, yeah, working with editorial was awesome. It's just been a good experience through and through. That's wonderful. I uh, and you know, like Superman certainly has his own legacy of having plenty of weird stories and sure. you know, creative artistic moments that are ready to break the brain. So yeah, I think that's a been, fun there, match. There have been um, some great Superman stories recently, and uh, I don't know. I'm just glad uh, I got to add to that. You know, in my own little contribution. You know, hopefully there's going to be more down the line. Um, but this was a, a dream come true. So it's been great. I can't wait for everyone to read it. I've been sitting on this for like 
ages. <laughs> but uh, finally, I get to talk about it. Well, thank you for sharing it with our listeners. We're psyched. It's up our alley. Of course. Um, so, yeah. So tell me, how can our work, how can, <laughs> how can our listeners uh, keep up with your work? Uh, they could just uh, follow me on social media. I'm on Twitter, just Michelle Fife, at Michelle Fife, at M Fife on Instagram, and just my own website too uh, that has news updates, art, everything. That's just MichelleFife.com. So that's M I C H E L. Yep. And then F I F F E. Yep. Fabulous. And as for me, I'm on Twitter a little bit too much. E-L-A-N-A underscore Brooklyn. That's Elana Brooklyn. Um, thank you, everyone, for continuing to listen to the show. Um, I've still been uh, releasing some of our Star Trek Deep Space Dive podcast episodes along the same RSS. So I appreciate the patience from those of you who are like, I don't care about Star Trek. Just talk to me about comics. Uh, I assure <laughs> you that'll be getting its own RSS soon. Um, but I just don't want anybody to miss anything. So thank you for bearing with me. And um, as we like to say... Keep it geeky.